in the early 1940s, the people of France were forced to live on starvation rations because the Nazis stole all their food and took it back to Germany. They had no rights. They could be denounced, imprisoned, or executed. France's young men, many of them remained imprisoned in Nazi Germany as prisoners of war, while their young women were often taken to Germany and forced to work in German munitions factories where they worked long hours with little pay under constant threat of aerial bombardment. Some French women were so hungry that they provided themselves to serve as German soldiers in what came to be known as the horizontal collaboration. French partisans in the resistance were executed if they were captured, but first they would probably be tortured in order to force them to rat out their friends. Jewish people were robbed first of their business, then of their dignity and their jobs. They were humiliated. They were taken from their homes in July 1942 to the Velodrome de Bear in the north of Paris, and they were loaded into cattle cars where they were transferred to concentration camps from which very few would return. In the countryside, some sought to harbor Jewish children. Others gave quiet support to the resistance, but most lived in constant fear without enough calories, always cold, and always worried that they or their loved ones would be next. It was a reign of terror, crushed under the boot of Nazi killers with no hope in sight for rescue. When we look at the reality of human history and we see the cruelty with which we humans have treated one another, when we weigh the collective tears and pain and sorrow, we begin to gain some insight into why those earliest followers of Jesus actually longed for Judgment Day to come, because that was the day Jesus would return and make everything right. That judgment was called the Day of the Lord because it was on the day that the Lord Jesus would return to judge the living and the dead that salvation would come. This theme is traditional in the liturgical calendar during the month of Advent, which is historically not about Christ's first coming, but about his second in which he breaks into the darkness as the son of righteousness, bringing light and life to all. It's a season in which we allow ourselves to feel the darkness of humanity's experience and the hopelessness that we find apart from Jesus, our Savior. We're going to look at a passage from 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, in which Peter reminds the followers of Christ about that coming day. He writes this, First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water and by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. 
The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. What do we see here? First, we see an exhortation to live at peace with God. For the skeptic, this is a warning to turn to Jesus while there's still time. He says, you must understand that scoffers will come on the last days. And the last days, every single reference, every single use of that term in the Greek New Testament of last days is a reference, not to the final years right before Jesus comes, but to the entire era between Christ's first and second coming. So he's saying, in this era between the first and second advent, between Christ's first and second coming, there are people who are going to mock the thought of his return, saying, ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it had. Uh, never one to miss an illustration, because you remember Peter's Lord taught in parables. He then gives the illustration of the days of Noah. By these waters, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And he goes on, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The import of Peter's words, if you do not yet have a saving relationship with God through Jesus, is that time is running out. There is an urgency in his words that cannot be denied. He writes, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And now he's saying you have this brief moment, just like the moments while Noah was building the ark, you have this brief moment to gain salvation because the world is going to be deluged, not with water, he says, but he uses the image of fire. Um, the Bible calls us to, the word here he uses is repentance. That's a turning to Christ in surrender. Not just checking off a box, yes, you can save me, but I will follow you all the days of my life. You are my Lord now. It's a commitment to, to seek him and to live at peace with him in a relationship that is both saving and life-giving. Uh, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And I hope you can hear God's heart in that. Because nobody loves their enemy. People hate their enemies because they're enemies. It goes with the territory. But here, God is loving his enemies. When you're not right with him, he says that makes you an enemy. And we're born enemies of God unless Jesus intervenes. And, 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 and he's calling us to surrender. Um, but he's also speaking in love, a heart that wants you to come to him and have life. You say, Greg, I go to church. I don't reject Jesus. I'm just not sure I'm ready to hand over to him my birth certificate, social security card, mother's maiden name, and bank account and bedroom just yet, thanks. Um, and we've worked hard to make this a church where you can be here and be in process. <laughs> you can be here and 
not yet be a Christian, you can be a part of this community without necessarily taking the vows to signal that you believe what this community believes. And we work long and hard to make this a safe place to be in process. Um, but I also hope you can hear Jesus through Peter uh, telling you that you can't put this off forever. At some point, a decision is made. You may be far from the kingdom, or you may be very, very, very close, but until you surrender, you're not yet in the kingdom because Jesus demands lordship over your life. I hope you can appreciate God's patience, and I hope you can recognize how short this life is and how precarious our existence is. We live on the skin of reality, not knowing what's really underneath, uh, and, and we've got time now to escape. Uh, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to him in repentance. Um, it's like, you know, every year hurricane season comes, and you see it. Sometimes it's the Texas coast, the Gulf coast, the Florida coast, or further up the Atlantic, but there's always some, you know, level four or five hurricane barreling straight toward a very thin barrier reef island, which is really just a sandbar that we should have never probably built on, but we did because we liked the beach, and except during a hurricane, and and the warnings go out, mandatory evacuation orders, everything, but there's always somebody who, who knows better, and they, they're going to ride it out like they have the, the last one. And, uh, and it's always tragic because the storm comes and hits them straight on, and you know perhaps they're, they're huddled on an upper floor, but then the roof gets torn off, and so they then go to the first floor, and then it floods and they drown, or perhaps they survive, but as the eye passes over, they go outside to check the damage and step in a puddle and are electrocuted. Or you see parents whose children have been ripped from their arms by the waves and by the wind, and the whole time the whole world is sitting there saying, why didn't you get out when you could still be saved? And that's what Peter is saying to us right now. There is still a moment. It just takes a moment to surrender to Jesus. And for those of us who are following Jesus, this is an exhortation to take God very seriously. He says, because this day is coming, we ought to live holy and godly lives as we look forward to Christ's return when we're going to see his face and everything's going to be made right and justice will be established. That's a, a life consecrated to God, waking up every day saying, here I am, Lord Jesus, reporting for duty. Command what you will, and I will follow you. Grant me grace that I may do your will. See, it's possible for those of us who follow Jesus to end up kind of like Bugs Bunny where he always made that wrong left turn at Albuquerque and he ends up in the middle of a desert and he looks around and he says, this is not the Coachella Valley and the Great Carrot Festival they are in. And, and we could do that in the Christian life. We're tunneling through this world, but we make the wrong left turn and we can end up in a place where, where honestly we realize we're not surrendering to God. And there are areas of our life that we're just not ready to let go of. And this is a reminder to live in light of what we're going to become when Christ returns. Because that is our hope, that is our destiny, that is our future. And you can go back and make the right turn instead of the left turn. It's always possible with God to start over. That's a call here to live at peace with God. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him we see this exhortation to live at peace with them and that we ought to take it seriously. Why? Because of what's coming. Uh, the sudden destruction of sinful humanity. He never tells us when this is going to come. That's because God is not constrained within this cosmos of, of time and matter. Um, 
with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So he doesn't tell us when Christ will return, though there are lots of people who are willing to tell you when he'll return, but they've all been wrong so far. Um, the day of the Lord, he says, will come like a thief. A thief breaks in when you're least expecting it, when you're asleep at night, when you can't see properly, um, like a thief in the night. And he speaks of the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. He says, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. It will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. The picture of there being no way of escape, no possibility of rescue, no safe place to get to, given that both heavens and earth are burning, it's almost like it's a picture of the sun going supernova. It's a picture of total condemnation with no escape, and we're being told that our planet must face this one day. The time will come in which we pay the penalty for our independence from God. Now, the obvious question is why would anyone want to believe this? Um, you know, and it's not really about wanting to believe it. Peter never says, here's what I'm really excited about. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's such a cool thought. We're all going to be judged. No, no. The way you used to determine what's true is you did not look inside your heart and ask how you feel and what you would like to be true. If somebody asks if it's raining, today people go online. It used to be you look out the window um, because it was about facts. It's not about simple stories. Um, but how can a God of love condemn people? It's a question that we all struggle with if you have a sensitive heart at all. And yet the majority of biblical references to a coming judgment are from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. And he is the only one who willingly signed up to undergo that same judgment for us on the cross. Um, you know, I, if you've been in this church long enough, you've heard me tell the story of the good policeman. Uh, you know, the, the good policeman was walking down Skinker, or she was driving down Skinker in his cruiser one day, and, and there was a little old lady with golf clubs trying to get across to, 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 to Forest Park to play around the golf. Um, she had fresh-baked cookies in her knapsack that she was going to give the poor children later in the day. And as she was trying to cross the street, this big Buick with three big Missouri boys pulls up in front of her. And out get these three big guys from out state, and they're, they're, they're not good people. And, and they push this old woman to the ground, and they start kicking her and punching her. And they steal her knapsack, and they steal her golf clubs. And then one of them does the unthinkable. He, he pulls out a knife does her in. And the good policeman sees this happening. And he turns on the lights on his cruiser and he speeds up and these, they see the lights and they're jumping in through open windows to get back in their car. But he gets his cruiser in front of them and pins them in and he walks up to them and he thrusts his arm into the open window and he says, hi, I'm the good policeman and I love you. What's the problem with the story of the good policeman. Because a good policeman would establish justice. He would apprehend them. He would take them before the judge. He would see that they get a trial, and the judge would see that they are punished because it's about justice, and justice is necessary in order for goodness to exist. And a lot of times, we kind of want God to be the good policeman, the stay puff marshmallow man in the sky who never does anything bad and never gets angry, and, 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 and yet that would not be a God who is good in relation to himself because his goodness cannot tolerate injustice and evil. 
And it's also not only about God's goodness in relation to his own heart and character, it's about just judgment is about God's mercy toward his victims. I mean, what do you say to the abuse victim, to the battered spouse, to the nine million victims of the Nazi Holocaust, to the gay men thrown off of towers by Islamic State militants, to the victims of the Orlando nightclub shooting, to all those throughout history who have been subject to humiliation, injustice, cruelty, degradation for those who have had loved ones taken from them? Is it any surprise that the modern disgust with the concept of a God who judges uh, the eyes of civilized people roll at such things, but this disgust at a God, which I used to have this disgust, it kept me from becoming a Christian for a long time, uh, this disgust at a God who judges, is it any ironic irony that it has only taken hold among the wealthy societies of the earth? only among those societies who tend to send their armies to go fight wars on other people's lands. Uh, the notion of a God who does not judge has not taken hold among the victims of the world. It has not taken hold among the world's poor. It has not taken hold among the world's marginalized, among those who have been stripped of their rights and abused, who have watched their sons and daughters be degraded or taken from them before their very eyes. Those are people who still believe in a God of judgment. Because to those people, the notion of judgment is a notion of justice. The conviction that, that evil will not have the last word. The notion that good will finally triumph over evil. The thought that perpetrators will actually be held accountable for their crimes against the weak and the poor. To the weak and the marginalized of the world, the notion of a God being a righteous judge is the notion of God being good. And perhaps we... Westerners ought to humble ourselves to learn from those who have truly experienced the suffering of this life to the fullest because they have much to teach us about God. The backbone of hope for the oppressed is the confidence that God is going to take care of it, that his word will be final, and that he will either judge the oppressor with his wrath or judge the oppressor with a merciful conversion and repentance that causes them to again walk in the way of love and life. But either way, God has the last word because goodness ultimately must win. Would you really want a God who never gets angry? Would you want an ambivalent God? When you see, if you can even imagine it, it's impossible to even imagine, but a mother with her little baby in a stroller going through the park and, and some strange man comes up and grabs her baby and runs off with it and she says, oh, I hate that. I love this person, but I really wish he wouldn't have done that. No, she's going to retract her claws and rip his face off. And if she's a Christian, she'll do it with her fist clenched in the name of Jesus because it's her love that is going to make her protect her child. It's her love that makes her angry. A friend of mine said, we need a God who gets angry. We need a God who's not okay with everything that's happening right now. A God who will protect his kids who will once and for all remove the bullies and the perpetrators of evil from his playground. Those who cannot or will not appreciate this have likely enjoyed a very sheltered life and are therefore naive about the emotional impact of oppression, cruelty, and injustice. Some of you know what it's like to be hurt, to have your life ruined, to have your hopes destroyed, and Jesus is saying there is going to come a day when a separation will come. Those who, who God those who know God will gain a place of absolute safety, and those who would threaten them will be sent far away. That's mercy to the victims. It's about God's goodness. 
but we don't just see mercy to the victims. It's also a heart of mercy toward the aggressors. What about the perpetrators? Becky Pippert writes this. She writes, we tend to be taken aback by the thought that God could be angry. How can a deity who is perfect and loving ever be angry? We take pride in our tolerance of the excesses of others. So what is God's problem? But love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, against the lie, the sin that destroys. Nearly a century ago, the theologian E.H. Glyphert wrote, human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, and the traitor. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. And Jesus is not indifferent. It is his love that will drive him to judge, even to condemn. His heart is so filled with love and compassion for the victims that he cannot allow evil, injustice, and hate to stand forever, but will bring about a final resolution. And his heart is filled with such love and compassion for the perpetrators that he wants us here and now to come to him and be reconciled to him and allow his grace to redeem you, to free you, to wash and heal you, and ultimately to change you. The concept of God is a weighty one. A God who's large enough to create and sustain uh, this universe of space and time is terrifyingly immense. I mean, we barely know God. Everything he tells us about himself is true, and it's a refreshing cup of water that is pure life, but that water comes from an ocean. God is immense. You say, I don't want to believe in a God like that. Well, perhaps not, but if you look at the sun and you stare at it intently, it will fry your eyeballs and destroy your vision because your eyes cannot bear the light. But how about the God who made and sustains the sun? who made a million stars, billions of galaxies, light, bi billions of light years away. Uh, how bright do you think such an entity must be to fuel all of that? It's like God told Moses, no one can look at me and live. Peter says the day of the Lord will come like a thief. He doesn't say that because he feels that he personally likes it, as opposed to alternative belief systems. No, he says it because he trusts Jesus and Jesus repeatedly told us that a day is coming when that separation will come about. And so he therefore considers it a fact, the reality, that God's judgment is coming, and it's about his own goodness in the face of evil, his own character, and it's the most loving thing that St. Peter could have done. The most loving thing he could have done was to spend the rest of his days laboring night and day to tell as many people as possible that Mount Vesuvius is going to explode, but the Ark of Salvation is Jesus, and you've got a ticket to ride if you like. And he gave up his life under persecution, under Nero and Rome, sacrificing his life in order to do just that, to bring salvation to as many as he possibly could. So where is the hope? Remember that judgment and salvation are two sides of the same coin. That's why Peter tells us you are looking forward to this, this day when Christ returns, because that's the day. Jesus is the judge. Judgment day and salvation day are the same thing depending on which side of Jesus you find yourself on. Um, it's a day of salvation for those who trust Jesus and rely upon his grace to save them. We read, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. There must always be a separation. If 
If you're unfit to spend eternity in the presence of God, then heaven would be hell for you. You would not be fit for it, and you would be miserable. It's like C.S. Lewis says in The Great Divorce, says that everybody ultimately gets what they want. If you want God, if you want Jesus, you're going to get that. And if you want to run your life away from God, you're going to get that. And it's going to be an outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth because everything you were made for will be lost fully, finally, and forever. The Bible says there has to be a separation. Sheep toward God, goats their own way. Wheat to God, shaft to destruction. And it's a mercy to the sheep to protect us from evil so that we can be with the Lord forever and safely. Judgment, salvation, same Jesus, two sides of the same coin. The day of the Lord comes when Jesus the Lord comes. And that Lord's presence means salvation for many. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He is patient with you. And his patience gives us time to get right with God through Jesus. The good news is that one came from beyond our universe in space and time. He stepped in and became a creature. The creator became a creature in order to make peace between us and God to rescue humanity from our own spiritual bankruptcy. You know what it's like. You know what an argument is like. And the Bible says that God and humanity have been at war throughout all time since the, our first parents turned from God and, walked, and, and were forced out of the garden. And we all start outside the garden. The world wasn't meant to be this way, but it is because we declared our independence, and that's where we are, and we're all to blame for that. And yet, the good news is that one stepped into this world in order to reconcile us to God, in order to put an end to the war between God and humanity. You know what it's like. Those of you who are married know what it's like. Um, an argument can go on forever until somebody backs down and says, okay, you're right. Um, you know how it goes. It's like, no, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. <laughs> Honey, I love you, but you're wrong. No, actually, I love you back, but you're wrong. I am not wrong. Stop telling me I'm wrong. Yes, you are wrong, and quit getting emotional. I am not getting emotional. You're the one that's wrong. No, you're the one that's wrong, and don't bring my emotions into it. And it just goes up. Some of you have been having this argument for decades, and, and it only stops when somebody says, okay, honey, I'll be wrong. And that's what happened when Jesus went to the cross. He took all the weight of our sin upon himself. Upon himself, Jesus said, okay, I'll be the one that's wrong. I will take the blame. And he took that blame all the way to the cross and paid the price for it in full. And because of that, we are no longer blamed for our sin because Jesus took the blame for us because he loved us. And that's the only thing that can crack open my hard heart enough for me to say, no, Lord, you were not wrong. I was wrong. You are righteous and holy and good. Forgive me, Lord mercy. To see Jesus doing that for me, his patience, therefore giving us the time to come to Jesus and receive salvation so we can walk with him through all eternity on a renewed earth and heaven because after the fire comes the newness. And when he, Peter talks here about a new heaven and a new earth, he's not using the Greek word naos for a brand new different earth, but rather he's using the word kainos for, for a qualitatively new, renewed, transformed. You've never seen it like this before, earth and heaven. The fire will purify and lay the groundwork for the earth itself to be reborn fresh 
renewed and eternally alive in keeping with his promise. We are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. On a windy day in 1944, in a small French village, a young teenage boy had been caught by the Nazis and suspected of supporting and being involved in the resistance. They tied his hand behind his back. They gathered all the villagers. His mother had been killed, and his father was a prisoner of war, and his grandmother was all the family he had left, and she was pleading with the Nazi guards to please save her only remaining grandson. Yet they tied him up, they blindfolded him, they put him up against the building, and as they were loading their weapons, a sound of trembling began to shake the earth. They could hear it. It sounded like a freight train, an engine. And then they saw over the crest of the hill as the first in a line of American tanks crested the hill above the village. And the Nazi guards dropped their weapons and they ran. They got in a jeep and they began to flee very quickly. And then an American shell landed straight on their vehicle and killed every one of them. And that boy survived. Was it judgment? Or was it salvation? And the answer is yes. Friends, something a lot more powerful and a lot more good than the American army is on the way in this world of darkness and disbelief. Because Jesus, God in the flesh, God who came once, is coming again, not as a lamb, but as a lion, to restore justice and righteousness and to redeem his cosmos and save his people and establish for all eternity the justice of God in the face of human cruelty, sin, and disbelief. Jesus is not slow in fulfilling his promise, friends, and when he comes... He will bring a salvation so beautiful and so pure and a healing for all the nations that all the world might praise him and give him glory as God and king and judge and savior. It's coming, friends. The renewal of all things is coming. Let's pray.